1572, and a group of Spanish Jesuits who'd established a mission in Virginia have disappeared. A rescue ship sails up the James River, its conquistadors scanning the dense shoreline, hazy with heat. They don't see any missionaries, but they do see Indians wearing the Jesuits' black robes. One even hangs a Eucharist dish around his neck. The Spaniards assume the worst. After a tense negotiation, they learn there's a boy who's still alive. An altar boy. A kid brought along to help build the chapel and serve mass. After a few days, the Indians produce this young man. He's called Alonso, and apparently he's become fluent in Algonquian, to the point that he's almost forgotten his Spanish. He's been transformed, in other words, from a Spaniard into an Indian. I imagine Alonso sitting there on the ship in front of these Spaniards. It must take him a moment to adjust, moving as he is from one world to another. The Spaniards pelt him with questions and he just blinks, trying to remember his words. The Spaniards urgently ask him about someone named Don Luis. Where is he, they demand. What's he done? Is it murder? I'm Brendan Wolf, Managing Editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we'll meet Don Luis, an Indian who was transformed into a Spaniard. Before he took a Spanish name, he was Paki Caneo, and his story, as told by Alonso and others, is one of the most interesting in Virginia history. It's part travelogue, part murder mystery, and it places in sharp relief how two cultures saw each other and for that matter, how they saw themselves. We present the story in three acts. Here then is act one. It's 11 years earlier, June, 1561. An early summer squall blows the Spanish caravel Santa Catalina into the Chesapeake Bay. There its crew encounters two Virginia Indians, Paki Caneo and an unnamed companion. These two Indians leave with the Spanish, although it's unclear whether they go voluntarily. A Spanish account written in 1610 claims that Paki Caneo was the son of a chief. In this version, Paki Caneo is a willing adventurer. Other scholars, though, shake their heads. They argue the Spaniards most likely took the Indians as slaves. Whatever the case, what's important is that already there are things we don't know, gaps in the story. And depending on how we fill in these gaps, the story changes. Was Paki Caneo encountering these Indians as a slave or as a free man? That matters. It also matters that we know a little bit about where he came from. Much of our knowledge of Virginia Indians comes from European observers, men like Captain John Smith. In a memorable passage from one of his histories, Smith describes a days-long ritual he witnessed while he had been a prisoner of the Indians. He writes that the Indians created a model of the world by mapping three concentric rings using cornmeal and sticks. One circle was their country, another the sea, and a third Europe. The Indian world was flat, circular, and guarded by elaborate ritual. Crossing from one to the other was no small thing, and now Paki Caneo has just boarded ship and abandoned the safety of his own. It takes the Spaniards three months to cross the Atlantic. They arrive in Spain in August 1561, aboard the Santa Catalina. It's worth noticing that Santa Catalina is Spanish for St. Catherine, 
a fourth century virgin. And in an amazing bit of foreshadowing, her name is said to derive from kata, meaning total, and ruina, or ruin. Catherine hailed from Egypt, and she got herself in trouble with the Roman emperor when she derided him for his material excess. She told him to marvel not at man-made things, but at the sun, moon, and stars. They move across the sky from the beginning of the world in the east to the end in the west. The emperor responded by beheading the future saint. But it's interesting, this idea of the world beginning in the east and ending in the west. Some medieval world maps, so-called T.O. maps, consist of two concentric circles. The great sea is in the outer circle, the known world in the inner. East is at the top and Jerusalem in the center. And yet, lurking not far in the past was this flat, circular worldview with a striking similarity to Pachycaneo's own. So Pachycaneo, from the end of the world, sails east and arrives in Spain. It's almost as if he's going back in time. The group travels overland to Seville. There, the Santa Catalina's captain files the necessary paperwork. He registers his expenses and asks for additional funds in order to take Pachycaneo to meet the king. It's here that we learn Pachycaneo's name for the first time. That's because this expense report still exists, tucked away in some Spanish archive, and you can see the name Pachycaneo where the Spanish bureaucrat carefully wrote it down. I imagine him taking dictation from the tired, sea-smelling captain. Pachycaneo. Or perhaps the Indian, described by several witnesses as being clever, has picked up a little Spanish by now. Perhaps he announces himself. His Indian companion, though, is afforded no such opportunity. He remains forever silent. Pachycaneo arrives in Madrid at the end of October. The king's court has just moved there, and the town is miserable and crowded. In recent months, its population has almost doubled from 9,000 to 16,000, and its streets, according to one visitor, reek of royalty and priests, thieves and ruffians. By contrast, the Indians of Tidewater, Virginia, number only about 15,000 spread across 6,000 square miles. In Madrid, Pachycaneo must feel cramped and overwhelmed. Everything's new, the food, the clothes, even the smells. The Spaniards introduce him to the king, Philip II, certainly the most powerful man in the world. Pachycaneo apparently requests that he be returned home, and toward that end, Philip approves a mission to Virginia to be led by Dominican friars, now resident in Mexico City. Pachycaneo will guide them and thus be allowed to return to Virginia. It's amazing if you stop to think about it. Pachycaneo encounters a Spanish ship on the James River, and within a few months, he's standing before Felipe II, the king of Spain. He's traveled a mind-boggling distance, possibly against his will, but he's still an Indian. The itchy new clothes aside, he's still Pachycaneo. Although the Spaniards have requested several times, he has refused to convert. He's refused to forsake the spirits he was raised to appease. And yet, here he is getting what he wants anyway, to go home. I think it's fair to say that Pachycaneo was indeed clever. After another long voyage, the Indian arrives in Mexico City. It's here that the Spanish viceroy, Don Luis de Velasco, plans to personally greet Pachycaneo 
and where the Dominicans will make final arrangements for their mission. The year is 1562, or just 41 years after the destruction of what had originally been the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. A famous map of the island city, which some scholars have argued has indigenous sources, was published in 1524. It's remarkable for those same concentric circles. It could be a medieval T.O. map, or rings of corn kernels. Pachycaneo makes it to the convent of Santo Domingo, and there he and his companion become ill. Perhaps thinking this is it, they finally agree to convert. They're baptized, and Pachycaneo receives the Christian name of the viceroy himself, Don Luis de Velasco. In the end, though, they don't die. Which is great, except that the Indians are sick for so long they miss their boat. The mission is canceled. Some scholars see something fishy here. Is it plausible that both the Indians were somehow cured? No, they say. Pachycaneo was playing the Spaniards. He was just pretending to be sick so that the mission would be called off. It's an interesting theory because it gives Pachycaneo agency. He's acting in the world, which is something that Europeans are loath to let Indians do. It seems just as plausible, though, that they were actually sick. To argue otherwise is to say that the Spaniards couldn't tell when someone was faking a near-fatal illness. The fever, the shakes, the glassy eyes. Could Pachycaneo possibly have been that clever? Whatever the case, this marks the end of Act One. Taken from Virginia, Pachycaneo travels to Europe, meets the most powerful man in the world, and sails back to America, this time to one of the largest, most multicultural cities on Earth. Mexico City's population was about 67,000, compared with, if you recall, 16,000 in Madrid. All of these inhabitants formed what one visiting monk described as a mixture of evil people, Spaniards and Indians called mestizos, Spaniards and Africans called mulatos, Spaniards and mestizos called castizos, Spaniards and mulatos called moriscos, and Indians and Africans called sambos. They were hustlers and heretics, prisoners and slaves, and their very existence rendered moot the Spanish ideal of limpieza de sangre, or blood cleansed of all non-Christian influences. This, then, is where Pachycaneo nearly dies and is reborn, a Christian and with a Christian name, Don Luis de Velasco. To learn more about Pachycaneo, and to actually see the only Spanish document with his Indian name, go to encyclopediavirginia.org. <laughs>